Hello and welcome to the MacFab Engineering Podcast. We're your hosts, Parker Dillman. And Stephen Craig. This is episode 281. So we've gone through 281 episodes and I realized that... No, 280. Oh, okay. Well, you, you, you're right. You're right. So by the time you've listened to this, though, we will have gone through 281 uh, episodes. So uh, we've gone this far and... I, and in, in in that m- amount of time, we've talked about through-hole manufacturing for PCBs uh, probably a handful of times, but I don't think we've ever, like, dedicated uh, talking about it. So I felt like, let's just have an episode where we, where we take a chunk of time and we talk about through-hole manufacturing and all the nuance behind it and, uh, and, and kind of what Parker and I know about it, what we know to... Look out for and some of the things to uh, do to make you uh, successful. So, <clears throat> when it comes to through hole manufacturing, well, let, actually, let me back up. When it comes to surface mount manufacturing, surface mount's been around for, for quite a while and it's sort of the de facto standard for PCB, right? But no matter how much you kind of walk through, um, the, uh, the the difference between uh, surface mount and through hole manufacturing you really can't get away from through hole you're pretty much always going to have some kind of through hole manufacturing it's very difficult to make a board that has just surface mount right so uh, it's worth it's worth understanding the processes that go behind uh, through hole manufacturing and it's worth understanding what you need to know as a designer to make sure that you're successful in things so when it comes to the processes Parker, what are the what are the general uh, processes that you'll see at a contract manufacturer for through hole processing? Yeah, so so most so the process we're talking about like the manufacturing processes, right? Like actually the putting the parts on the board and performing a process. Say I've got a say I've got a through hole part and I've got a board with a footprint and I want to make those two forever. Okay, uh, so you get some bubble gum, chew it up, <laughs> stick it underneath the part. Stick the part on. No. So you got a couple different ways of soldering this component onto the board. Um, hand soldering uh, is the first one. Um, most low volume manufacturing that's through hole. Guess what? People are soldering those parts on. Um, that's it's actually very interesting that that's probably was the first way soldering was ever done on boards was by hand, which makes sense. But we still do it today. Um, it's unavoidable. Like it's just. Oh, yeah. Hand soldering will always exist. Yeah, it will always exist. Unless we have soldering robots. So um, I actually haven't seen these in a long time, but they do exist, and I have seen them in some CMs. Um, But soldering robots are basically a mechanical version of a hand solder. It actually has an iron that's on a robot arm, and then it has a, a wire feed that feeds solder. And then it goes around and puts the tip down onto the where you want the joint to be made. And then it feeds a little bit of solder into it. And then it backs off, goes to the next one. Um, that's kind of been replaced. I don't know when those were introduced or something like or uh, were mainstays. Um, cause I don't see a lot of CMs with those anymore, but what's kind of replaced those is selective soldering. But before we get to selective soldering, we're going to, we'll talk about wave soldering. So wave soldering, it's kind of like the mass production way of doing through hole. And so what that is, is basically there is a, a 
pool of, of liquid tin or lead, if you're doing leaded soldering. But most, most CMs are going to be lead-free. So you have a, a, a pool of liquid, of, uh, liquid uh, tin. And then there's a pump that's pumping liquid metal around into a wave that's like a... An actual wave. An actual wave above the surface. And then your, your PCB assembly is pre-populated with all the components. And then that board dips down and rides the wave through the, uh, through the, um, through the tin, liquid tin, basically. Um, now, there's other steps in there. Where you have to apply flux to the board. You have to preheat the board. Preheat the board. And we're going to get more into this later, but you also your leads have to be formed and trimmed correctly because if your leads are too long, your your parts go into like basically it's called the blade that's in there that's forming the wave. It'll hit the wave and then your board will flip over and then spill all the parts plus the board into the vat of liquid tin. And then you contaminate everything. And yeah, contaminate everything. It's, it's messy. <laughs> um, that's wave soldering is always just baffles my brain because you're like because you're sitting at room temperature and you're looking at like this like two foot by one foot block of basically just molten metal that's just it's a fountain of it too Mm -hmm. the wave so and then so what we play soldering robots which is basically an iron that moves around on a gantry and gets soldered is selective soldering so think of like a localized wave solderer it's a chocolate Wait. fountain on a CNC bed. Yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a tin fondue machine. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so, yeah, it's a little fountain or a little wave. And they actually call it a wave. It's a standing wave, basically. Um, but it's a little tiny point, and there's different nozzle sizes for it. But it's so instead of moving the board onto a giant, like horizontally wide wave, it's actually a little wave and you drive the wave around under the board. Now, some some actually drive the PCB around machines, but most of them drive the vat of tin around to solder the boards. Um, and the, thing, the trick with uh, all these different processes is there's different design criteria for them. Um, hand soldering, as long as you can get an iron into where you need to stick the solder at, you're good to go. But um, if you want to do, quote, cheap, unquote, you know, PTH assembly, you have to have some, you have to go to wave or selective soldering. Um, so there's definitely different uh, design criteria for those. So yeah, let, let, okay, so let's, let's go back real quick and just recap that. Four different processes that you can generally expect that your your contract manufacturer will have at least one of these four, if not multiple of the four. Mm-hmm. There's hand soldering, there's soldering robot, which there's probably a better name for that, but that's what we've always called it. Uh, hand soldering, soldering robot, wave solder, and selective solder. And those are your four major processes that you'll find at a contract manufacturer. So if your board contains any through-hole or if it's predominantly through-hole, it will go through one of those processes. Now, let's rank those real quick in terms of general cost of, of what you're going to see. And then let's talk about the design criteria behind them. So you say cost. There's also there's cost per unit, mm-hmm. and then there's NRE cost. Yep. So separate those two out. So on the most expensive per unit, but lowest NRE cost... 
hand soldering for, for sure. sure. I actually don't know what it is for soldering robot because I've actually never designed anything or pushed or got anything quoted using one. Well, okay, I'm going to guess it's going to be NRE is going to be higher than hand soldering because you have to program it. And it does take time. It's only a little bit faster than hand soldering. So the price per unit is probably a little bit cheaper than hand soldering, but not too much. I, I used to work with a contract manufacturer out in San Antonio and they had a solder robot and, and you, you have it, you have it exactly right. The one thing, okay. So hand soldering takes is, is generally the most costly because it's just almost a hundred percent labor, just mm-hmm. human labor doing your work. Uh, soldering robot still requires a good bit of labor because it, um, in my experience, it requires an operator sit there and watch it do the work because, uh, it has to, it has to be inspected and, it, mm. and, uh, um, it, it's prone to failure. So you have a trained technician who's out there making the programs for it that are not the easiest things to do because there's a lot of input variables as to like, what angle are you approaching things? Do you have like, like what kind of tip are you using on the solder robot and things like that? Uh, so it takes a trained operator to do it and then they have to monitor it. So it's fairly expensive mm-hmm. and it's not fast. Yeah. And then on, um, so if we're going, we're going up on the NRE costs and then down on the per unit costs. So the next thing would be way, uh, would be selective soldering. Mm-hmm. So selective soldering, your only, your only NRE costs are the, is the program of the machine itself as well. Um, but those take more, t- it, it takes less time than hand soldering, but not as much time as the next thing, which is wave soldering. So wave soldering is the quickest because you are you're literally dunking the bottom side or the side of the board that you're soldering into just liquid solder and then pulling it back out. But you have more NRE costs. Mainly in most most boards nowadays are double-sided assemblies with surface mount parts. Well, if you have surface mount parts in contact with liquid solder, it's just going to rip the parts right off the board and because they will just desolder. And your your contract manufacturer won't get be too happy with you because that will probably get stuck in the impeller in the machine. <laughs> so what the so what um so what they do is they design a wave solder pallet that basically masks off the parts of the board that you don't want dunked in the solder, and run it through that way. So, uh, yeah, DJ O twenty seven X in the, the Twitch stream asked um, if you're going to wave solder, you have to have a human place the through hole components right and and in my experience you um it well depending on the board you you'll have you know one to many humans uh on a conveyor in front of the wave solder and each one is responsible for however many x amount of through hole parts and they place their parts and it goes down the line so yeah you do you do pay for um uh you know human labor to insert parts wave solder out of out of this entire group is is um your high high volume manufacturing option here. Uh, you can easily pay for a handful of people to stuff parts 24 seven. If you're cranking up boards 24 seven. Um, and, uh, so, so if you're talking about high volume manufacturing, wave soldering, certainly the way to go. Yeah. Um, and on the inserting components, the part has to get into the board somehow. Um, now back in the day when, uh, through hole components was the mainstay, you actually had machines that could 
auto lead form and auto we're going to get to lead forming in a bit but auto lead form and auto trim and auto insert components like resistors into boards um those machines don't really exist anymore uh, i have never seen one in a factory they probably do exist still they do yeah but but they're they're rare yeah the dinosaur machines too probably i, I bet you not a lot of manufacturers still make those machines you know a lot of a lot of um cheapo power supplies and things and and single side power supplies they that go into appliances and stuff are still through hole so there are still machines that that service those but they're not there's there's a there's a high likelihood that your your contract manufacturer is not going to have that correct um actually the last appliance that i took apart that was it was a much newer appliance it was a single-sided pcb but it was surface mount so just had a clean side. <laughs> yep. So <clears throat> when it comes to, to wave soldering, the one thing to keep in mind is that um, your board is going to enter into the, uh, the, the machine in one direction. It's going to exit the machine in one direction. So you have a direction uh, through which the board uh, actually makes contact with the wave of molten solder. And depending on which direction that is, that can have an impact on how your your parts get soldered. Uh, so, um, I'll be honest, I don't know all the details on that. There's a lot of information because um, I, I honestly haven't had to design around that. But that's something to keep in mind. Uh, the way you orient your board, the way it goes through, and the way you orient your connectors, you can actually prevent solder shorts and other problems uh, based off of which direction it's going through. And if you see these large uh, volume manufactured boards that are designed for wave solder, a lot of times you'll see like big arrows in silkscreen on the board that that indicate, hey, go this direction through the, uh, the wave solder because there was a lot of attention paid to that. So if you're perpendicular or uh, parallel to the wave, you can get different, um, uh, well, you, you, you can experience different issues uh, with the wave. So, so one thing with a wave solder machine is that it's usually blanketed in an inert cast like nitrogen or something like that to make sure that the machine, <clears throat> that the wave doesn't uh, produce a ton of dross because you have a, this huge uh, wave of molten uh, metal there. And if it makes contact with oxygen, it can grow a oxide skin over the wave. And that just makes for awful solder joints. It's like metal pudding skin. Right, right. Well, okay, so if that ever goes wrong in the machine, then whatever board's getting soldered there is just virtually garbage at that point. Mm-hmm. Uh, so going back to your orientation of components, I haven't really seen that too big a deal for connectors. Um, that's mainly for what I've seen it for is there is a process of um, soldering SMT parts through a wave solder. Oh, if you if you uh, apply glue to them? Yeah, so how that works is instead of applying solder paste to your board, putting the parts on and then reflowing it, what they do is they dispense a dot of glue in the center of each part. They put the parts down, run that through the reflow, and that bakes that glue. Um, I think some of them are air-cured, but I think pretty sure most of them are, are thermal-cured. Um, and then they run that whole puppy through the reef, the, the, the uh, wave solder after all the through-hole parts have been put on it, of course, and that will solder it. Now, SMT parts were never really designed for that, and they have closer leads together, 
And so depending on the orientation, you'll get bridging. You'll definitely get bridging if they are not put in the right way. Right. I would definitely not recommend designing your product for SMT reflow through a wave solder. Um, but if you're building a billion of something, that might be a consideration. Just you know to what, shave off one process, right? I've seen that in in high volume products like TVs and things like that. If you yes. ever if you ever pull out a board from like a computer monitor or a TV or something like that, and you and you see their surface mount passive like resistors and caps, and you see this little blob of red crap that's around the um, those parts, those have been glued down. Mm-hmm. Um, and and there's there's a, a handful of different reasons why somebody might design that into it, but like Parker was saying, this is kind of one of the main ones is such that it can survive going through a wave solder yeah. machine. Yeah, it's for that. Um, and the whole reason to do it is to, because getting rid of one process makes your product just that much more cheaper to manufacture. Mm-hmm. Um, See, so yeah, I, I wouldn't worry too much about, especially low-volume connector orientation, um, even for wave soldering, the main thing is actually is keeping. Uh, if you have bottom side parts, first of all, try to not have bottom side parts. Yeah, single side load will always be cheaper. Yeah, that will always be cheaper. Um, you still might need a pallet because if you have large open vias, the solder will actually flow up through the via and spill out over on top of the board. Um, but or if you're panelized. Uh, and have cutouts in your in your yeah array. that too. Um, but besides that, the other thing is is try to keep your you have to talk to your content manufacturer of what their DRC is for that. But keeping your components your S and T parts away from the the through hole, and so that there's enough space for the fixturing to basically seal up against it. Exactly, and so that's that's the 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 pallets is what you're talking about. So these pallets mm-hmm. create like a a protective heat shield of, uh, against the, uh, the wave since the wave can flow onto your uh, through hole parts and it doesn't make contact with your SMD parts. So if you're designing a board and you know that there's going to be through hole parts on the top side and SMD on the bottom side, um, you're going to want to make sure that you know what your proper clearances are for your pallet to be around. And in fact, what's, what's really convenient if if you have the ability to create a new layer in your EDA tool or even a silkscreen layer of an outline of where the pallet will rest against your board that helps your manufacturer um, ensure that everything is connected properly mm-hmm. um, but even more I guess important is that in that spacing is for selective soldering so if you're in that middle ground of um, you're still not doing enough to make a full pallet worthwhile, but you want to be you know, cheaper than hand soldering is that selective soldering range. And selective soldering's really taken off, especially here in, in the United States for uh, contract manufacturers. It used to be no one had them, but over like the last 10 years, like almost every CM has one now um, because you don't have to have uh, NRE fees for a pallet. Um, but on the other end of that, though, is you have to have more space between your solder lead location and your SMT component on the bottom side because you're driving a nozzle around that's you know 10 millimeters wide, and if that comes anywhere near a surface mount part, it's just going to desolder that component. Um, I think at Macrofab, our I have to ask our operations, but I'm pretty sure the DRC is just I think 10 millimeters. 
And and when you're laying out a small board, 10 millimeters is massive. Yeah. And and so uh, something to keep in mind, that clearance, if if possible, uh, that clearance is the edge of your through-hole pad to the edge of the next component. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that 10 millimeters will add up really quickly. So at, at WMD, we use a, I believe it's a 6 millimeter nozzle, and we can get away with 3 millimeter clearance. Now that's like sniping things with it. Uh, mm-hmm. that, that means we're not taking the nozzle up and moving it across. That means we're just going up and then down and to the next component and up and down. Oh, so y'all, y'all are doing point to point. Well, I mean, it, we don't prefer to, but uh, if we have to, we can. Um, the, the best situation is to take the nozzle up like say if you have like a header, like a uh, a header of ten pins, ten header, yeah. Uh, we'd like to hit the edge and then drive across it. Uh, that does the best solder job. But if we're in a really tight space, we can you know bounce up and down and, and snipe pins. But th- that that's the most difficult and the least uh, reliable uh, form of selective soldering. The best way is if you can drive the the uh, the pot upwards, start on one pin and then go across a line of pins or maybe circular or however it works. Um, mm-hmm. That's the best situation. So keeping that in mind as a designer, like, yeah, it might make sense to electrically to put a component right next to a pin because, okay, you, ha- you know, it's the most ideal situation electrically. Yeah. But from a manufacturing side, that's usually garbage. Mm-hmm. And it would be even hard to make a pallet that that would work for that too, like right. if you're going to wave soldering. So I I, I have to ask uh, Chris Colbert at at MacFab what uh what the minimal on that machine is. The, you know okay so if you're getting uh, you have a, you have your 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 electrical design done and and you're looking to get prototypes on your on your next world's best widget uh, and you you want to get three of them made. Hand soldering is probably the situation that's going to happen for you because oh, for sure. people are not going to go through the, the the trouble of creating pallets or creating uh, programs for your thing. They'll just hand solder your components and that's good enough. But say you've gone all the way through your manufacturing plan, you've done manufacturing ramp ups and things like that, and you're ready to make a million of your widgets. Well, it's probably going to go through wave soldering. So this is sort of like a tiered process. Uh, and depending on your quantity, will put you in a bucket of one of these four processes. Mm-hmm. So what, what's also really important with uh, that deals with these processes is also lead forming. And it's something that I find that a lot of designers and uh, companies kind of forget about. Because SMT, there's no lead forming. You pick the board, you pick the part out of the, out of the reel or off the tray, put it on the board. It's done. That's it. Um, with lead forming, with hand soldering, you don't really, besides like if you have to do a fancy like bending a leg a certain way, you don't have to worry about lead forming for hand soldering. You put the part in, solder it, trim it. I guess that's the your lead forming is trimming. Because um, actually when you talk about wave soldering or selective soldering, you have to lead form everything in form of your trimming. If, well, not everything, but most most components uh, if they have long legs, you have to trim it to the right length um, so that where they go through the machine correctly and not catch the the nozzle of either the wave solder or the selective solder. Oh man, just the nightmares of um, of on the, remember that old selective solder we had at Macfab? The what was it the the old um, rhythm rhythm yeah. RPS rhythm yeah. the really old one we have we have actually have we have a new rhythm now that's like. 
amazing. Yeah. But so we bought this rhythm RPS rhythm used, um, and it was already on its last legs. Yeah, it was but, rough. <laughs> but we rebuilt it. Steve and I rebuilt that machine, and we had it. We had that thing cooking. Like it was awesome. <laughs> but one time we had an operator left one of the leads about. It had been like only like a hundred mil, like a mil, like a couple million, maybe a millimeter, lot too long, on the bottom, and so it caught the nozzle and it just tipped the nozzle off the machine off the top of the machine, <laughs> yeah. and so then you have instead of a like a six millimeter uh, nozzle of sl- of solder coming out, it's now it turned into like two inches in diameter of <laughs> just molten metal spraying everywhere. And, yeah. Everywhere. And, and that <laughs> nozzle that is a, is a choke down. And so, um, it actually hampers the flow. And so, and we had the pump like maxed out cause that pump was so worn out. Yeah. Well, without that restriction, it just spewed it everywhere. I think it like half emptied that, that tin pot all inside that machine. Before the operator was like, Oh, that's not good. <laughs> oh, I should stop this. <laughs> I should stop this machine. <laughs> Oh, good. Soldered time. the hell out of that board, though. Yeah. <laughs> One solid sheet of solder on the bottom. Oh, man. So, yeah, like, okay. It's going to be dependent upon every machine because every, every yes. manufacturer machine is going to have different requirements. But if you're looking at a cross section of the board, the, the, the distance that a leg protrudes from the bottom of the board, uh, there, there is a specification on that. Uh, so most manufacturers will handle that for you, mm-hmm. but you're going to get pay, uh, charged based off yeah, of you're um, charged for it. how much time they have to take in trimming all of those legs. Yeah. So picking a part that uh, it might be already preformed already that fits your footprint or picking a part that doesn't have that has the right shaped legs already. Um, but we'll also go into actually like lead forming. Like if you have to bend legs a certain way, I've seen um, some like MOSFETs that have to have the legs bent for voltage considerations actually, because like if you, with the legs on the component are, are, they're far enough away for the voltage isolation, but you can't make the pads on the board far enough away. Mm. And so you have to lead form one of the legs out. Um, I've seen that before. Um, But so those, uh, Try to find lead forming parts like tools that already exist and not have to get custom made, especially right now. Like, I'm trying to get some custom tooling for this for a customer made right now. Um, that ain't and it's like the it's like 22 weeks right now, lead, <laughs> yeah, uh, to get some jaws basically machined, yeah, and and also like that's okay, uh, some jaws for a pair of pliers. So you can lean don't hard. necessarily maybe a rule of thumb here is not your you, your contract manufacturer is the expert in this realm or you should you should consider them the expert in this realm but they're not necessarily you shouldn't necessarily rely on them to design a thing for you so Correct. if you need uh, if you need some kind of lead forming work with your contract manufacturer knowing what kind of tools they have like for example 
we have a um, a pneumatic lead forming tool at at my job. You know, if you were to become a, a client with us and you needed some kind of unique lead forming something rather, I could share with you what machine we have. We could both get in contact with the uh, the manufacturer of the machine and look at their catalog of dies that uh, are available, and then maybe one of those would work for you. But mm-hmm. but maybe like a, 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 what I'm getting here is don't if you were to work with me you shouldn't necessarily rely on me to design your lead forming tool custom and you shouldn't necessarily design your lead forming tool custom and then expect me to use it. Correct. Yeah. Um, yeah. And on trimming on trimming leads too, like what we have is that we have a machine that you can just put pretty much any pitch part into it and then you hit a little foot pedal and it shears all the bottom of the parts off, right uh, off the leads, which is a really convenient way to uh, trim those parts correctly. The machine I have for lead forming, it does both. You basically replace the head, and one head is basically a a guillotine that just cuts them to the right length, or the other one does fancy stuff and bends Yeah, bends it the right way. Yeah. You know, the other option is... A lot of through-hole components come with pre-bent leads. You can you can purchase a flavor of a component that has pre-bent leads, and that's almost always uh, the most ideal situation. Mm-hmm. So, like so- TO92 transistors, a lot of times will come with pre-bent legs that fit in a, uh, nicely and stand up well. So, go with those if if you can. And one thing that's not in here, but should be for lead forming. Well, I guess it's not really lead forming, but it's it comes after this, after lead forming. It's um, offsets, component offsets. So for SMT parts, they just go onto the board and you solder it. There's no there's no height besides the height of the components. With through hole, you can put it flush to the board. You can have them offset because there's there's some variability in the height of the component. So if you need the height to be set. To a certain like, so you're attaching to a heat sink, or or you have LEDs that need to reach up to like your enclosure height to your front panel. You need to call that out in your assembly documentation, and um, a way to do that process. And you should talk to your contract manufacturer on on that. Like at Macrofab, we actually 3D print all that stuff. We 3D print like if you need a component that has a five millimeter offset, we'll print and a, a fixture that does that offset for us. Yeah, I remember um, we started doing that when, when I was back at the fab, way back mm-hmm. in the old building, we would make little spacers that just slid in and help yeah, things. Yeah, so you, you basically you, you would put the spacer on the board, slide the part in, solder it, and then you can slide the spacer back out. Um, there's also a lot of components that are like that that are designed to be soldered in place or put into place, like sleeves that go around LEDs, and then you drop that whole thing on the board. Some have snap-ins. Um, those are mainly used also for support, whereas if you remove the spacer, there's nothing to support it. But yeah. that's also a thing to keep in consideration is like, if there's a certain specific offset that your part needs to have, call that out. Make sure that your contract manufacturer knows about it and so that they can get the right tooling spun up for it. I, I would say that one of the biggest offenders of that is LEDs. Um, so like, let's say you have a PCB and then somewhere up above that PCB, you have the, the, the user panel. Uh, I've seen so many times people say insert led such that it's in flush with panel or, or or it, it goes into some hole in the panel. Well, 
that wording right there tells me that I have to push the LED up to into that hole in the panel and then solder it in place. That's not a machinable operation. That immediately means hand soldering. Uh, so that's, that's one way of designing, but you're guaranteed to be designing a lot of cost into your product at that yeah, point. You, you, at that point, you're basically making uh, custom-fitted custom boards. Well, and and like I said, LEDs are sort of the main offender in that in that situation. Mm -hmm. So many LEDs have, or so many manufacturers make readily available LED standoffs that that are just a tube of plastic with holes in them that that an LED just slides in. Mm -hmm. It takes a second longer for the operator to slide the LED into that and then push it onto the board, and then it is machinable. And you, even though you're spending more money on a standoff, you save way more money in the in the long run with labor. Well, not just labor, but also like uh, in um, in in waste. So let's say you custom fit that LED to be the right length. So like you put it in the hole and the enclosure and you put your board on solder and you put it all together and it doesn't work. Well, that PCB or like the enclosure is bad. Like the silk screen's wrong on it or, or gets scuffed or something. Well, you, there's no interchangeable part there anymore. Cause that board is fitted to that, that, pan, solder that uh, panel now. Yes. Yeah. Solder. Oh, solder in place assemblies. Yeah. That's a whole different topic. Yeah. No, like avoid them if possible. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So then, yeah. So lead forming with a die or a hand tool, um, those are those are completely acceptable. But that's that's a conversation to have with a contract manufacturer. And and as we always say, like the earlier you can get in contact with your contract manufacturer, the better. As opposed to like calling one of us up and being like, "Hey, we have this whole project ready to go. Here's all these tools you'll need to buy in order to do my thing, and figure it all out. And mm -hmm. the documentation is garbage. Like." Not a good way of handling that. So if if you know you need something uh, lead formed, like let's say an uh, uh, example I'm aware of is, you know, some resistors have a um, uh, like a power rating, but that power rating is only true if they're elevated off the board such that they, they have airflow underneath them. Well, sometimes they have unique lead forming such that they, they the leads themselves hold them up in the air. Okay, that's a situation where maybe we could uh, purchase a die and uh, and specifically cut and bend those leads for that situation. Uh, now, keep in mind that if that's something that we have to purchase and install, I mean, you're going to end up getting charged for that die. That's not something that will float yep. for you. Yeah, mo most CMs just hide that into the their price. It gets rolled into it, right? Yeah, it gets rolled in. Yeah. I have seen some cool machines before. I've, I've never actually got the, the chance to use them, but... Uh, it's it, okay. So it's it. I I call it a pizza cutter. Basically, think of a huge like think of a deli slicer where the uh, where the blade is horizontal. You put all your through hole components in. Doesn't matter the length of the leg. You just insert them all the way in, and then you just slide them across this giant pizza cutter, and it cuts all the leads to the right length on it, hmm. uh, which is pretty neat. Uh, it's really really fast for for doing that. The, the the one problem with it is none of the components are supported, uh, so they're all just yeah. I figure they might jiggle out. Yeah. Well, yeah. The problem is you have to design the board properly to for that machine. So not only do you have to have design criteria for the whatever process of soldering, you'd have to have design criteria for the cutting machine. So those machines are really great for high volume stuff where you can afford to 
look at every single component under a microscope like that. But I don't know. Like most of the time, like what Parker and I were talking about, the the little foot pedal pneumatic kachunka chunk choppers uh, end up getting the job done. Mm -hmm. And before we go on to PCB design for through-hole manufacturing, um, since we're still kind of talking about process and lead forming and stuff, is there was a, I have to, I'll have to post a video game, but there's an old RCA radio company um, uh, video out there that was made in about the 50s when transistors were starting to be like, you can get a, tra a single transistor radio. Oh, this, was, this video was well before OSHA was a thing. Yeah, so they're, they don't have a wave solder machine, um, but they have a wheel. It's a, it's a, it's a solder pinwheel. Or it's a Ferris wheel. Ferris wheel. Yeah. It's a Ferris wheel for boards. And so, a, so they have like little trays that are, that, it's like a, a, what do you call those, a basket on a Ferris wheel? Basket, sure. Basket. So it's a basket. So think about the baskets that go around on a Ferris wheel, and but the hanger, the part that hook up to it, that pivot, come off, and so the boards go get into those hangers or baskets, and then they dip it into the resin flux. So like they're like it's like stamping it, but there's like a, basically a, a a warm bath of resin. Yeah. For the flux, because they just dip the components. It's like a vat of the, earwax. Yeah. But well, it's it's liquid, so because they can so they can dip it, and not to push the parts out. Yeah. So they just dip the whole thing in it, and <laughs> then they put it on the Ferris wheel, and it goes around at a set rate and just dunks the board, the bottom of the board, into molten lead. But but not like it, it's molten lead, but it's like it's like a pot that's like twelve inches by like eight inches of just yeah. molten like, and it's open to the environment. Like if you just stuck your hand in it, like. That'd be on you, I guess, is the way they handle that. <laughs> That'd be on you, I guess. <laughs> and and the amount of fumes this thing explodes oh, because yeah. it's completely covered in flux, and then it hits a molten bath of of metal, and there and there's just this operator who's standing next to it, and it's just like la 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 la. But like, well, that <laughs> operator is also smoking. Yeah, probably. <laughs> <laughs> it's a really cool. Uh, and I smoke through the cigarettes through a filter. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> this solder fumes tastes great. Okay, let's move on to PCB design for yeah. through all. Okay, so uh, I, when I was uh, I was I was kind of thinking about this earlier. When when you look up a, a data sheet for any surface mount part, I shouldn't say any, but but a, a large portion of uh, surface mount devices, they give you a complete footprint. Uh, they give you a footprint that shows, you know, here's the extents of the components, here's all the pads, here's your openings for your mask, and, like, they give you everything you need to know. But when it comes to through-hole components, most of the time, you're lucky if you get 50% of it. So Yeah, most of the time it's just like, here's where you should drill holes, and here's the diameter of the holes. Yeah, here's a recommended diameter of a Yeah, hole. recommended diameter. But they, they rarely give you the size of the pad or the ring that goes They around. never do. I've never seen that. Right. Yeah. So the, uh, at best, through hole data sheets are 50% uh, done. Let's just and this out. is something that I don't know about because when I do through hole parts that are like this, I so the next thing is is like annular ring size. Yep. I just go, that looks big enough. <laughs> <laughs> so I am not up to snuff on on this 
we're about to go through right now. Well, okay. So here's the thing. There is actually like a proper uh, way uh, to do it. So, but yeah, before we do that, let's just talk about the holes real quick. So, um, so when it comes down to a hole for a through hole component, it's 99% of the time it's going to be circular, right? Doesn't necessarily have to be. Uh, and it used to be, if it wasn't circular, you'd pay a lot of money because they had to do extra processing on it. But, um, and more modern PCBs, they can plate non-circular holes. Uh, so slots and things like that. But 99% of the time, you're just punching a circular hole in it and then you're plating the barrel of that hole. Right, okay. So... Uh, there's some rules of thumb when it comes to how how you size those, but most of the time your data sheet is, uh, if it is a specifically through hole solderable component, they will give a recommended hole size, and in general, I would recommend using that hole size. Mm. If you don't have a recommended hole size on there, my rule of thumb is if it's circular, go ten thou larger than that. Um, ten thou the diagonal of of the pin because most pins are square in profile well mo mo most like header pins but like resistor legs and capacitor legs are going to be circular oh they're they're round but yes but most yeah don't make you that want, don't make that mistake you, you you'll be uh with the square root of two under if you if you go off of uh the wrong side yes so make sure that your the diameter that you're picking or the the diameter of your hole will actually fit your your pins. Brown pins are easy because it's round pin, round hole. But sometimes you have square pegs that go have to go in the round hole. And your round hole has to be bigger than the diagonal of that square. Well, same thing with a rectangle. If it's a rectangle, go off of the diagonal of a rectangle uh, mm -hmm. and make it larger than that. So, so, so 10 mils larger is a good rule of thumb then. I guess you can also look at your contract manufacturer and what uh, PC manufacturer they're using and seeing what their tolerance on the drill hits are. So so that's it, a way you would actually calculate that. Well, here's the here's how I uh, arrived at 10,000. I've actually never once had a problem uh, with 10,000. Um I've had problems with doing other things before. So most contract manufacturers when they come to drill size and drill location, it's 3,000 tolerance is what they what they suggest. Um, and then most component manufacturers that I've run into with like resistor leg size, it's three thou tolerance. So if you're three thou off on your, your drill size, you're three thou off on your drill location and you're three thou off on your component leg size tolerance, you're still nine thou off. It'll still work. And there's tons of give and play in through holes. So 10 thou will pretty much always get you there. If you, um, if I was making a, something like a kit for somebody to solder as like a my first soldering thing, I'd make it fifteen or twenty thou. Just make that make it really big, so there's like no problems whatsoever. But for general manufacturing, I found ten thou works fairly well. Uh, now there are more specifications for this, so that's a rule of thumb from Steve Craig, uh, ten thou. But I've just never really run into an issue with that. If I was doing something for automatic insertion, I would. 100% go off of what my contract manufacturer says because a 10 thou tolerance on like leg, leg bend position for a machine to push into a hole like that's really really tight I would think they would want more than that and then uh, yeah so non-circular through hole legs are acceptable 
um, it's still something worth checking with your contract manufacturer. Um, I mean, if you're going to start making something really weird or really small or really big, uh, then you have to you have to start asking questions on like, is this acceptable or is this going to start costing me a lot of money because they're not having to plate you know a huge amount of area with gold or I'm asking for a four thousandth slot in a board mm. that I want plated like those two things are ridiculous right um, but but say you have like great example a lot of potentiometers and boards um, they have mounting tabs that are rectangular. You could put a giant circle on there to account for the for the rectangular mounting legs on there, but you're going to waste a ton of solder because you're just filling up a huge circle on there. But it's if- not just that either. You also ha- uh, you start introducing uh, um, placement uh, positional errors. So like if you're if that most time that potentiometer is going to a panel that has a machined hole that you know gets mounted up to. Well, if you got a lot of slop in the PCB footprint, well, that part's not going to be in the right uh, position. Right, right. So if you're trying to fit a rectangle into a circle, you're going to have, I'm sorry, a a, yeah, a rectangle into a circular hole, your circular hole is going to have to be enormous to fit the rectangle. Um, So if you can get away with a slot, then you can get a lot closer and, and hit your target a lot faster or a lot easier. Um, Okay, so yeah, let's talk about annular rings real quick. Um, and it seems like annular rings confuse a lot of people. So an, an annular ring is the amount of copper that exists outside of the hole and to the edge of the through-hole pad. So when you're looking at a through-hole pad, the pad itself is basically the annular ring. It's mm-hmm. from the hole to the edge of the, of the, the pad on there. So... The annular ring is up to the designer 99% of the time. Most data sheets don't call out what size annular ring because uh, take let's let's take pin headers as an example. Uh, pin, a 0.1 inch pin headers, um, you, you know the spacing between the pins, but they don't give you the annular ring. And a lot of reasons why is because you can change what that annular ring is. Let's say you have high voltage on it. You might want to go with smaller annular rings such that your creepage in between each pin is different. Or if you want it to be really easy to solder because you know you're doing hand soldering, you might go with larger annular rings if your voltage or is Or oblong ones. Or oblong, yeah. Actually, I had a, I had a client that um, was very, very particular about having um, a very specific oblong pad because they liked soldering that. So I had to design a custom pad for them for that exact situation. So an- annular rings are kind of up to the designer. However, there are some standards that that um, dictate how to calculate annular rings. So we have a we have a um, uh, a link here that we'll post up in the show notes, uh, macfab.com, uh, what slash podcast is, uh, how you get to the, uh, the blog post. Uh, so, uh, this website gives a basic, uh, way to calculate IPC standards for annular rings. So IPC has a bunch of documents when it comes to, um, PCB footprint land pattern designs. So there's actually four different, um, IPC standards that apply to 
general PCB footprint design, but but they include through holes. So there's IPC 2221, 2222, 2223, and 7351. So that's generic standards on printed circuit boards, sectional design standards for rigid organic printed boards, um, so IPC 7351 is the document that's going to give these calculations on how to actually say, here's my hole, here's uh, a handful of other characteristics about it, how big should my annular ring be? Now, the funny thing is that calculation still has wiggle room in it because it still has, it does. the designer still gets to choose characteristics about it. Yeah, and and also one thing to take into consideration of designing your annular ring is also the DRC of your boards being made. Correct. And you make your annular ring too big, you're, you're going to violate the DRC of your board. Correct. Yeah. And, you, and you'll have to do... Also going the other way, too. <laughs> so the general rule of thumb goes, the bigger your component gets, the bigger your annular ring gets. And the reason for that is um, like mechanical stability. Say if you have a little fourth watt resistor, you can usually get away with a much smaller annular ring on your pads because it's it doesn't have as much mass flapping around in the 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 wind. But if you have a giant like one farad capacitor on your board, it's gonna have a big annular ring because it wants you need more solder to to create a mechanical uh, bond, bond to the board. Uh, so that's just the very loose rule uh, on on annular rings. So IPC seventy three fifty one. Um, has three different classifications uh, within it. Now, now I'll, I'll pause for a second. I really wish that there was some kind of portal that we could go read these things. These are not... You can't just go to Google and type in IPC 7351 and just read the PDF. I mean, you sort of can, but it's... I guess it's a little bit of yo-ho in a way. But, um, <laughs> uh, like, uh, the, to have the official up-to-date document, you usually have to purchase these these documents um most not, a lot of contract manufacturers will have these available they might not have the most recent up up to date but they might have them so it's it's worth having a conversation with them they might also have an engineer who just knows the information in his head so how much how much does it cost to get a copy well, because if you're let's say you're a metal machinist mm -hmm. usually you buy the metal machinist handbook which has all the ANSI standards for like how to cut threads of different sizes and all those tolerances, has all that stuff in it. This is that equivalent for electrical engineers, for layout designers, I guess. Um, how much is, what's the price difference there? Depends. Each one has its own price. And I'm, I'm not 100% certain, but I, I believe there's also a service that you can uh, like rent them in a way. So um, a, a machinist handbook is about 30 bucks. That's yeah. These are much more than that. I've seen some of these standards go up to like 800, but I think that that was a group of standards, not just a single one. Um, mm. Actually, I, I, I pulled up a really cool image I found online. Uh, two images, actually. So, so Parker, if, if, if you go to the bottom of our show notes, um, I've got these images. If you want to share them in the Twitch stream and we'll have them in our show notes. These are super awesome. Um, it's a cartoon image of a PCB manufacturing floor, the first image, and it, and it shows every machine that you would generally find on a contract manufacturer. And as you look through the image, 
it shows which standard applies to each one of those machines. Oh, I've never seen this. This is cool. Isn't it great? It's so great. So like all the way down to like document handling. So on the very top left of the image, you have digital data. You have somebody who's handling like Gerber's coming in. IPC 2581 refers to how your contract manufacturer should uh, handle your Gerber files and, and handle, you know, passing things in between all the way down to in the, uh, in the top right of the image, you have uh, cleaning. Here's the IPC standards on how to clean a PCB. Um, so if you're interested in like a very particular portion of the, um, of uh, the manufacturing process, you can look at this image and see that if you're just more of a words and, and, and numbers guy, there's another image down below. That's a flow chart that just shows here's how a board's made and which standard applies to it. So if you scroll down, Parker, that's down there. So these are all the IPC standards that apply to that, which if you look at the very bottom of this list, it's data transfer and electronic um, product documentation. That's all the IPC standards that apply to it. The very next thing in line is the design and land patterns. And these are the IPC standards that apply to that. So, <clears throat> Uh, okay, so yeah, so so back to the classifications in IPC seventy three fifty one. There's three separate classifications that uh, that will determine your calculation of your uh, of your annular ring. You see, this is why surface mount is so much easier. Like somebody's done all this for you, right? Well, it's in the data sheet already done most time, and and you can't. There's there's a little bit of knob turning and like adjustment you can do a very small amount in surface surface map there's a lot more in through hole so okay so the three things you have control over you have um your performance classification you have your productivity levels and then you have your land pattern uh determination so your performance classification is the classification to which they the contract manufacturer will um inspect your board too so class one two or three Oh, IPC class one, two, three. Right. Okay. Is it a McDonald's toy? Is it a washing machine? Or is it a space shuttle? Basically, like I like how there's no difference between a washing machine and a space shuttle, though. Like, there's no in between there. <laughs> right. Like you just hop that level, right? Yeah. Uh, I, you know, I've I've heard it been said before. Um, if you're trying to kill somebody or save somebody's life, it's class three. So military or medical, right? <laughs> <laughs> so, okay. The productivity levels are not numbered. They're, uh, the productivity levels are A, B, and C. And it, those refer, to kind of boil it down, those refer to how hard it is to make your, uh, your, your product. Um, and, and that's a really simple way of putting it. Um, so let's say, let's say your board is really sparsely populated and you have the ability to make big landing pads and everything's really easy to solder. Well, then your productivity, um, uh, is, level is a lot easier. Uh, but let's say you, um, things are a lot more constrained and you have small annular rings and things. It's a lot more difficult, uh, to make. So those are levels A, B, and C. And then, uh, the last thing is your land pattern determination. So, Perhaps, um, perhaps your board is so densely populated that your annular rings have to be small. Uh, your land pattern determination is basically a density level on your board. So A, B, and C um, refer to that. Uh, so 
all the details of that are, are in 7351. And before this podcast, I, I Googled, you can find PDFs of 7351. They might be slightly old, um, but the bulk of the material is uh, generally the same. So all said and done, uh, if you're really looking to fine-tune your product, and let's say you're, you're making a bazillion of whatever, uh, these, are, these are all things that you're going to want to discuss with your contract manufacturer, and you're going to want to pay attention to each one of these. Um, in general, if you're, if you're making a, you know, a, a moderate amount of your, your product, what I've found as a, as a simple rule of thumb with annular ring, if you take your whole size and you multiply it by two, you'll get an okay annular ring. So the two rules it's of thumb. better than my rule. <laughs> oh, yeah. Well, just look at it. Oh, it looks good enough, right? <laughs> I just don't do a lot through holes. So the two rules of thumb. Take your lead size, add 10 thousandths to it. Take that whole size, multiply it by two, and you have your whole size and your annular ring, and that generally works. Now That's the Craig rule of thumb. That's the Craig rule of thumb, and, like, if you, you know, I hold no responsibility for any <laughs> broken or, or non-working products or anything like that. Uh, you know, obviously we need to test anything. It's just using those general rules. I've never really had uh, much of a problem with them. And if you don't want, if you want some more explanation behind Craig's rule of thumbs, IPC 7351. Oh, it's going to give you uh, IPC 7351 is like hundreds of pages of just, just nerd text. Like, they're great. Oh, yeah. I really wish I had a hard copy of it because I would leaf through it and I would actually read this stuff. Um, I just don't have a few hundred bucks lying around to buy all of these standards. Yep. All right, cool. Yeah, I think that kind of gives a general overview of through-hole manufacturing. As as we always say, uh, if, if you know your board's going to have uh, these kinds of processes on it. Get in contact with your contract manufacturer. Ask what machines they have and start designing around those processes. Your contract manufacturer will be able to give you um, more concrete numbers as opposed to like, oh, just take your whole and multiply by two. Uh, they'll they'll yep. be able to give you... But they might actually tell you... They might be listeners of this podcast. <laughs> That's true. They might say and use they that. Might say that. No. Yeah, Craig's rule. <laughs> <laughs> So that was the MacFab Engineering Podcast. We were your hosts, Parker Dolman. And Stephen Craig. Later, everyone. Take it easy. Thank you, yes, you, our listener, for downloading and listening and watching our live stream on Twitch and downloading our podcast. If you have a cool idea, project, or topic, or rule of thumb, let Steven and I know. Tweet us at MacFab, at Longhorn Engineer, or at Analog ENG, or email us at podcast at MacFab.com. Also, check out our Slack channel. You can find it at MacFab.com slash Slack. Also, we uh, live stream our podcast every week on Twitch. That is twitch.tv slash macrofab. We go live every week, Tuesdays at 6 p.m. So join us for the live stream. Yeah, we do a lot of chatting beforehand, and after the podcast, we chat a little bit too. So, macrofab after hours. <laughs>